Our prehistory is 100% listener funded, so please consider becoming a patron of the show. For $3 a month, you gain access to exclusive episodes, maps, and timelines. I really appreciate your support, which allows our exploration of prehistory to continue. To become a patron, click on the link in the description of this episode, or go to patreon.com slash ourprehistory. A chill hung in the afternoon air as an old woman walked along a stream, carrying a small bundle of freshly picked herbs. The roar of a cave lion echoed faintly across the hills. These fearsome creatures had always been a part of her life, and at a distance it did not concern her. Ahead, she saw smoke rising high into the clear blue sky marking the camp where her band had spent the past 20 days. Approaching the outskirts of the camp, she walked past her two adult sons, butchering a reindeer they had killed that morning. They each wielded a long stone knife on a wooden handle and cut thin strips of meat from the reindeer to be dried. Next to them lay an enormous white mammoth's tusk brought to the camp a few days earlier. Her sister had been overjoyed at the sight of this beautiful ivory. The old woman approached the center of the camp, where three fires were arranged in a triangle and ringed with white stone. On one side of the camp, large horse hides were stretched between wooden posts to keep the wind at bay. A pile of broken reindeer bones sat between the fires. Each fire marked a distinct hub of activity the old woman walked to the nearest one, where several people were working with animal skins. A teenager was running the wide, sharp end of a stone down the inside of a fox skin. This scraping released meat and fat from the skin, which she wiped off her tool between each stroke. Next to her, a woman used a tool fashioned from the rib of a bison to soften a rabbit skin. Running the hide frenetically back and forth against the bone left it soft and supple. The old woman handed the bundle of herbs to her son's wife, picked up her baby granddaughter, and sat down next to the fire. The baby was enthralled by the pattern of ivory beads sewn into her clothing. Alongside them a man was hunched over a reindeer hide, which he pierced repeatedly along the edge, and planned to convert into a satchel. Looking across the camp at the other fires, the woman watched the activity. One person napped bladelets from a block of flint with a bone hammer. Someone else chopped a reindeer antler into smaller sections to make sharp dart points. At the stream, a boy washed out reindeer intestines and her sister polished rods of ivory. Her band was working hard, preparing supplies for a move. In a few days, they would pack up camp and make their annual migration southward, back to the caves where they would endure the bitter winter. These people lived 38,000 years ago in Western Europe. They were members of the Aurignacian culture, which spanned the European continent at the time and was characterized by functionally specialized tools.
Welcome to Our Prehistory, Episode 12, Aurignacian Technology. Around 40,000 years ago, most Neanderthals died out. Homo sapiens was alone in Europe. This turning point in prehistory saw the disappearance of various transitional cultures in Europe that combined elements of old and new, characteristics of the Middle and Upper Paleolithic. Ulusian stone crescents, Chateauperonian curved blades, Mousterian scrapers, and Siletian leaf-shaped points vanished, almost simultaneously. In their place arose a uniform set of customs that archaeologists refer to as the Aurignacian culture. Last episode, we saw that the Aurignacian arrived in some parts of Europe 42,000 years ago, which was before the extinction of the Neanderthals. It was most likely brought by migrating groups of Homo sapiens from the Middle East. They used tiny stone bladelets, a defining feature of the Aurignacian. But the culture of these people was characterized by more than just stone bladelets. As the Aurignacian way of life came to dominate Europe, sophisticated innovations in hunting weapons and highly specialized tools developed. Personal ornaments became ubiquitous. People exploited new types of raw materials. Artistic creation flourished, and musical instruments appeared for the first time in the archaeological record. The diversity, quantity, and quality of artistic production was unprecedented up until that point in history, at least as far as we know. These dramatic changes lead us to ask, what led small groups of hunter-gatherers living in Ice Age Europe to create such an advanced society? That is what we will explore over the course of the next two episodes. But let's start with the basics. The Aurignacian is a culture of European prehistory that falls at the beginning of the Upper Paleolithic. It lasts about 9,000 years, from 42,000 to 33,000 years ago, and was followed by the Gravettian culture. Archaeologists define the Aurignacian by the presence of stone tools, primarily bladelets and larger blades, produced from specific types of cores, quite often of high-quality stone like flint and obsidian. Cores, blades, and bladelets were napped into recognizable shapes, which are used by archaeologists to identify Aurignacian campsites across Europe. For example, long blades were often resharpened into a strangled form, where the middle is narrower than the ends. The function of this shape is unclear. Other characteristic artifacts left behind by Aurignacian people are points carved from antlers, which were used as tips on hunting weapons, and beads and pendants made from a wide range of materials. Hundreds of Aurignacian sites have been discovered across Europe, from Britain and Portugal in the west to the Pontic steppe of Ukraine and Russia in the east. The highest density of uncovered Aurignacian sites is in southern France, where the most detailed research into this culture has taken place. But many sites have also been found in the foothills of the Carpathian Mountains and along the upper Danube River of Central Europe. 
the widespread distribution of the Arg nation is especially intriguing. Identically shaped stone blades and bladelets made using the same types of cores are found thousands of kilometers apart. Hunter-gatherers in Greece, Iberia, the Eurasian steppe, and Belgian lowlands were all using a similar kit of stone tools and producing them using similar procedures. This level of cultural standardization was uncommon during the Middle Stone Age and probably resulted from a variety of factors. First, a dispersal of Homo sapiens from the Middle East probably carried the custom of making bladelets across Europe. Second, the Arg nation lifestyle must have been especially effective in Ice Age Europe, leading to its success over competing lifeways. Third, after the Arg nation came to dominate Europe, useful technological innovations spread easily. For example, antler point technology became common throughout the continent around 40,000 years ago. This dissemination of ideas must have been facilitated by networks of contact between highly mobile forager bands. These networks connected distant regions and maintained a coherent European culture for thousands of years. The complexity of our Ignatian culture might be surprising, considering that during this period, Europe was not densely populated. Estimates of population size in prehistory come with a lot of uncertainty. But based on numbers of archaeological sites, it's thought that somewhere between 2,000 to 20,000 people lived in Europe, similar to the density of Neanderthals before their extinction. Even by the standards of hunter-gatherers, this is a low amount, fewer than in later periods of European prehistory. Scarce human presence can be explained partly by the environment of the Ice Age. The cold grassland ecosystem covering much of Europe during this period was harsh and could not support large numbers of people. Argonation groups were highly mobile hunter-gatherers, moving long distances to track the large herbivores they hunted. In fact, Argonation camps commonly contain high-quality stone and seashells that had been transported more than 100 kilometers from their place of origin, and frequently more than 300 kilometers. Seashells of Atlantic species are found on the Mediterranean coast of France. Black obsidian of the Carpathian Mountains in Hungary was carried as far as the Danube River, 300 kilometers to the west. This highly mobile lifestyle and other practices adopted during the Arg Nation would be perpetuated in Europe for tens of thousands of years. The people of the Arg Nation established the framework of the Upper Paleolithic forager life that sustained many generations through the peak of the last ice age. The Upper Paleolithic is divided into different phases by archaeologists based on styles of ornaments and variations of stone and bone tools. These periods include the Aragonation, Gravedian, Salutrian, Epigravedian, and Magdalenian. But specialized stone and bone tools and artistic creation remained constant throughout the Upper Paleolithic. This cultural continuity is mirrored by genetic stability. Based on DNA analysis of ancient human fossils, there was very little influx of people into Europe from Asia during the Upper Paleolithic. In other words, most Ice Age Europeans were direct descendants of the Arg nations 
in both a cultural and genetic sense. This episode will focus on Aurignacian economic life, hunting, camp structure, and technology. Next episode, we'll turn our attention to the rich symbolic creations of this culture. Aurignacian hunters primarily targeted medium to large-sized herbivores. In northern Europe, where cold steppe covered large expanses, by far the favorite prey of these people was reindeer. At most Aurignacian camps, from France to Germany, reindeer bones make up more than half of the remains of hunted animals. Herds of reindeer migrating across Ice Age grasslands were ideal targets. Widely available and large but not dangerous. Secondarily, horse and bison were also hunted. Rarely did people hunt the largest animals of the steppe, mammoth, although they did collect tusks from skeletons found in the landscape. In southern Europe, where a warmer climate prevailed, Red deer and wild goat were the main prey of Aurignacian hunters. This strategy of focusing hunting efforts on medium-sized animals reflects a continuation of the primary Middle Stone Age approach. But one aspect of hunting did change with the Aurignacian. Small, quick animals were hunted more frequently than during Neanderthal occupation of Europe. The bones of rabbits, foxes, and birds like grouse and ptarmigan, among many other small animals, are often found in or around the ashes of Aurignacian campfires. Even fish bones appear occasionally. To be clear, small animals still constituted a minority of their diet. A deer provided substantially more meat, fat, bone, and skin than a rabbit, for example. So from an economic point of view, Hunting larger animals provided a better return for their time spent hunting. But small animals may have provided vital nourishment at times when larger animals were scarce. This ability to access a diversity of prey may have been key to Aurignacian resilience in a harsh environment. Also, small animals may have been hunted for desirable raw materials, such as feathers or furs. Killing a small, fast animal probably required a different approach than a reindeer. Traps or a complex projectile weapon, such as a bow and arrow, would have been key. Last episode, we saw that a trend towards greater small animal hunting took place in the Italian peninsula during the Eleusian transitional culture, where bows and arrows are known to have been used. So far, no definitive evidence has shown that bows and arrows were used during the Aurignacian. But based on the small size of some of the bladelets they produced, their hunting weapons were probably light projectiles of some kind, allowing them to injure and kill prey from a distance. Unfortunately, no one has ever found a fully assembled Aurignacian hunting weapon. The wooden parts have all decayed, and we are only left with the stone and bone components from which to try to reconstruct them. It's believed that the small pointed bladelets that define the Aurignacian and which spread widely across western Eurasia were used as components in hunting weapons, although they were probably versatile components used in other types of tools as well. About three centimeters long, less than a centimeter wide, and only a couple millimeters thick, 
These tiny microliths were inserted into wooden handles to construct tools. For instance, a study of microscopic wear on bladelets found at a site in France showed that they were used in knives to slice meat. The other major component of hunting weapons that are typically found in Oregonation camps are sharp points carved out of antler or ivory. They are slender, about 8 centimeters in length, which is twice as long as the bladelets, and often circular or oval in cross-section. I mentioned earlier that these antler points were a key defining innovation of the Aurignacian that spread across Europe a couple thousand years after bladelets. They have been found at dozens of Aurignacian sites from France and Spain to Italy, Germany, Belgium, Czech Republic, Hungary, Austria, and Slovenia. At one site in Slovenia, a cache of 125 Aurignacian points was discovered, probably stored there by a hunter for a later time that never came. Close study of both blades and antler points have revealed fractures that are diagnostic of high-speed impact, consistent with their use in projectiles. So how were these antler points and bladelets assembled into an arrow, dart, or javelin? The preferred theory among archaeologists is that antler points were attached to the end of a wooden shaft and bladelets were inserted on the side as barbs designed to maximize damage as the weapon penetrated the animal. Before the use of antler points, the wood itself may have been sharpened to a point with bladelets inserted as barbs. Given the novelty of Aurignacian points, it's worth taking a closer look at them. The most common material used was reindeer antler, although mammoth ivory was also used occasionally. The Aurignacian is the earliest known use of antler as raw material for tools, something Neanderthals never did despite frequently hunting reindeer. So far in our study of prehistory, we have only seen bone points appear first in southern Africa during the Middle Stone Age, and later among bow hunters of Sri Lanka soon after the out-of-Africa migration. One advantage that antler points provide over bone is their strength. Antler is less brittle and less likely to break upon impact. Antler weapons were produced through a complex series of steps. First, reindeer antlers were cut from a killed animal or collected from the landscape. Adult male reindeer shed their antlers every year. Next, the antler was chopped into smaller segments using large stone cutting tools. These segments were scraped on a stone to create a straight point. Next, the base of the point was modified to be attached to the wooden shaft. This often involved creating a split in the base into which the wooden shaft might have been inserted. Splitting antler is not easy. Experimental recreations of these points have been made by soaking the antler to soften it and then cutting an incision with a stone knife. Into this notch, a wedged tool was hammered to split and bend the base. Archaeologists call these artifacts split-based points and have found them with Aurignacian tools all over Europe, showing that once this technical process was developed, it spread from forager band to band across large distances. The split base, along with the consistent size and shape of these points, has led archaeologists to propose that split-based points were made to be easily replaceable at the end of wooden shafts. 
But why antler points? For hundreds of thousands of years, stone had been the primary material at the tip of hunting weapons. One theory is that during early phases of the Aragonation, sharpened wooden points had been used to tip projectiles. But as the climate got colder around 40,000 years ago, forest cover declined and wood became much more scarce. With reindeer antlers available in abundance, people of the Aragonation adapted by using the resources available to them. This theory is supported by the fact that antler points seem to be less common in southern Europe, where more trees were available. The exploitation of new raw materials in Europe is another example of Homo sapiens adapting to the unique environments they encountered as they dispersed further from Africa. It's interesting to note that two defining Aurignacian innovations, bladelets and split-based antler points, were used in hunting weapons. People were developing ways to improve their hunting efficiency. A reliable supply of animal food may have been key to other social developments of this period. Technological innovations during the Aurignation were not limited to hunting weapons. Wide-ranging changes impacted hunter-gatherer life. For example, a new level of structure appeared in forager campsites. Bands built multiple fires within a single camp. Archaeologists often uncover ashes, charcoal, and heat-altered soil alongside Aurignation artifacts allowing them to map the position of fires and domestic activity within these residential spaces. In France, some groups followed an interesting convention, placing three hearths in a triangular arrangement. Sometimes, different activities were associated with different fires, such as ornament making, stone napping, or animal butchery. Due to the scarcity of wood in Ice Age Europe, bones of hunted animals became the primary fuel for fires at some sites. Around these central hearths, Aurignations created structures to improve their efficiency. Some fires were ringed with heat-reflecting limestone blocks. Other fire pits were dug into the ground. In Greece, Aurignation people lined their fire pits with clay. All of these structures facilitated the management of the fire allowing greater control of its intensity. Permanent hearth structures were rare during the Middle Stone Age of Africa, which might reflect the lesser importance of fire for warmth in more tropical latitudes. Fire structures also suggest that Aurignation people spent significant amount of time at single locations, making the construction of these structures worthwhile. Many archaeologists believe that Aurignations rotated between long-term camps on a seasonal basis. In France, it seems like they spent winters in caves. This is based on the teeth of reindeer and horse hunted by Aurignations, which were all killed during the winter at one cave. Following the winter, they probably moved to open-air camps for the warmer seasons. Camp structures were not limited to the hearth. There's some evidence that windbreaks made of hide were built at camps. Post holes around Aurignation fires have been discovered and may have been used to hold these screens. Also, heavy stone blocks lined up at the entrance of two French caves are believed to have anchored large hides hanging from the drip line. 
These screens would have helped to contain the warmth produced by fires within the cave. This Argnation organization also extended to domestic tools, which were highly specialized. These items were made from a combination of wood, bone, stone, and antler. Argnation people carried their tools with them from site to site, repairing them and resharpening them. Many tools were personalized. Argnation bone tools were often engraved with decorative lines. These markings are interpreted as symbols, identifying the tools as belonging to a specific individual. Within the stone portion of their toolkit, microlithic bladelets were the most innovative element, unknown in Europe before the Argnation. But alongside these tiny tools, larger stone blades were also produced in large numbers and shaped into distinct forms. Some were made into end scrapers, often with wide rounded ends and probably used to clean hides. Alternatively, blades with long sharp edges were converted into knives and used for filleting meat. Both end scrapers and knives were attached to wooden handles. Close analysis of microscopic traces on end scrapers and blades shows that they were both used in animal and plant processing. We know little about the plant portion of the Argnation diet, but residue of starchy plants have been found on their tools. For example, one Argnation grinding stone from Crimea was used to smash starchy tubers, while a fire in Greece was used to cook grass seeds. Argnations also consistently produced a variety of formal bone tools. They were not the first people to use bone to make tools, but the Aurignacian marks the point when this practice becomes extremely common, standardized, and permanent among European hunter-gatherers. Like Neanderthals, they used bone frequently as a hammer to nap stone. Much like transitional cultures, they made awls to puncture soft materials. Awls were made from sharp fragments that resulted from the breaking of bones to extract marrow. They especially liked to use the bones of horse feet to make awls, probably because the knuckles provided a convenient grip. Unlike previous cultures, Aurignacians frequently used the ribs of animals they hunted to make smoothing tools to soften animal hides. For these, they split the ribs lengthwise and scraped the ends until they were smooth and round. Many other enigmatic tiny bone objects have been discovered in ancient Aurignacian camps, such as tubes, sticks, and double-pointed awls. They were clearly intentionally shaped, but their function is a mystery. Even a few needles with eyes have been found in Aurignacian sites, especially in the cold steppe of Eastern Europe. Finally, wedges were produced from antlers, probably as intermediate tools used to split other antlers or wood. This toolkit of stone bladelets, knives, and end scrapers antler points and wedges, bone awls and smoothers, became widespread across Europe around 40,000 years ago. The people who crafted these tools used similar methods across the continent. Similar core shapes napped following similar, highly technical, standardized sequences, which allowed strict control of their final shape. Interestingly, completely different types of stone cores were used to make bladelets and blades, Bladelet cores were shaped like a boat, with one flat side and the other rounded. 
Blade cores, on the other hand, were shaped like prisms or pyramids. These similarities are found from the Atlantic coast of Iberia to the Don River of Russia and reflect a unified tradition. Adults taught children and members of other bands in strict detail how to replicate this valuable toolkit, which served them well in the Cold Ice Age. One interpretation of the Argnation toolkit is that it reveals the appearance of a division of labor within forager bands, with some members focusing on producing clothes, others hunting weapons, and others ornaments. This is based on a couple observations. First, a high level of technical skill and knowledge was required to produce some of the tools and ornaments. Second, different methods and materials were used to make hunting weapons and domestic tools. Whereas weapons were made from bladelets and antlers, hide-working tools were made from blades and bone, and ornaments from animal teeth, seashells, and ivory. Bladelets and blades were made using different napping sequences. Growing specialization in artifact types may reflect parallel changes in forager social organization. Another interpretation of the Argnation is that people were devoting more time to making tools and organizing their camp. A greater investment in technology may have increased their ability to extract resources from the environment and might have provided them more leisure time in which to explore their artistic and musical talents. So far, I've been speaking of the Arg Nation as a uniform culture, without differences over space or time. But the Arg Nation covered at least 7,000 years of European history, and hunter-gatherer life did not remain unchanged over this period. So to finish this episode, let's take a look at the regional and temporal variation within this phase of the Upper Paleolithic. Comparing the Arg Nation of different parts of Europe can be tricky, because organic material like antler and bone are not equally preserved at different sites. Caves tend to preserve these materials better than sites exposed to rain, sun, and wind. And it just so happens that caves were inhabited more often in Western Europe than Eastern Europe, partly because caves are less common as one moves into the flat Eurasian steppe. Also, caves might have been used differently by hunter-gatherers than open-air sites. For example, caves are more likely to have been long-term residential camps and resulted in more varied artifacts accumulated than in open sites, which are more likely to have been short-term hunting camps. So when we find differences between Argnation sites in Western and Eastern Europe, it's not always clear if these were the result of differences in camp function, material preservation, or cultural differences between groups in different parts of Europe. With those caveats out of the way, some clear regional differences emerge during the Argnation that represent cultural variation. First, split-based antler points tend to be more common in Western Europe, whereas round-based points were more common in Eastern Europe. Second, the first Argnations who arrived south of the Alps, along the Mediterranean, tended to use longer bladelets than those who reached north of the Alps, along the upper Danube River. In Italy and southern France, 42,000 years ago, people made bladelets about 4 centimeters long, whereas in Germany, bladelets were consistently shorter. 
archaeologists often divide the aurignacian into subphases in time, based on relatively minor changes in tools and stone cores. I'm not going to cover these in detail. They are based on the French record, and it's unclear whether subphases occurred in other parts of Europe. But there do seem to have been some general European trends that we can point out. The earliest phase is called the Proto-Aurignacian, to indicate that the first people of this culture had not yet developed the full set of Aurignacian traditions. Migrants arrived in Europe using bladelets, but not split-based antler points. Also, they had not yet developed the rich artistic displays that would appear later. The full set of Aurignacian characteristics appeared after 40,000 years ago, when this culture expanded to cover more of Europe. This coincides with a severe cold period in Europe, the disappearance of transitional cultures, and the decline of Neanderthals. From this pivotal date to the end of the Aurignacian, the full repertoire of technology and art was in place, but still underwent minor changes. For example, the method of producing bladelets followed a progression of different core types. Boat-shaped cores were replaced by other forms. Also, bladelets got shorter towards the end of the Aurignacian, going from an average of 4 to 2 centimeters long. These microlithic tools also change from straight to slightly curved and twisted. Toward the end of the Aurignacian, the split-based modification of antler points fell out of favor, replaced by round-based points. These adjustments to hunting technology probably don't reflect major shifts in lifestyle, but changes in social standards imposed on tool production. Over time, the area covered by the Aurignacian grew. One expansion phase coincided with the decline of Neanderthals around 40,000 years ago, when the Aurignacian spread out of its initial migration routes along the Mediterranean coast and Danube River. But another phase of expansion took place around 38,000 years ago, when Europe entered a relatively warm period that lasted almost 2,000 years. This warming allowed foragers to expand northward. For the first time, Aurignacian people moved into the Great Plain of Northern Europe, including Britain, Belgium, Central Germany, and Poland. This was the area of Northern Europe that had been occupied by the LRJ transitional culture, with its leaf-shaped points. During this warm period, people using Aurignacian tools also expanded into the southwest corner of Europe. Southern Iberia was probably the last refuge of Neanderthals, who may have survived there until 37,000 years ago. But after this date, Neanderthal Mousterian stone tools fell out of use, replaced by Aurignacian bladelets. Here, Neanderthal persistence finally ended in the face of incoming Homo sapiens. The Aurignacian culture even seems to have spread to the northern Levant around this time, where split-based points appear. This was about 5,000 years after the movement of people from the Middle East toward Europe with proto-Aurignacian bladelets, and is an interesting case of an evolved form of a culture spreading back to its place of origin. The repeated expansion of this culture reflects its long-lasting effectiveness as a foraging lifestyle. Based on what we've learned today, let's take a look at the big picture. 
Should we view the Arg Nation as a development of pre-existing trends or a fundamental rupture in the human way of life? From one point of view, we could say that human life during the Arg Nation remained fundamentally the same as in preceding periods. People continued to live as seasonal nomads, relying primarily on hunting medium-sized animals and collecting plants. Population density remained quite low. From a technological perspective, bone tools and blades became widely used during the initial Upper Paleolithic in the Levant, Europe, and Northern Asia, several thousand years before the Arig Nation. Those elements were also found in many transitional cultures. So in this way, the Arig Nation was only a perpetuation of earlier innovations. And yet, if we focus on the level of organization in forager life, it seems like it was increasing in complexity. Yes, blades and bone tools remained crucial components of the toolkit, but people added microlithic bladelets, a greater diversity of bone tools, and the exploitation of novel resources like antler and ivory. In addition, our Ignatians built more structures within their campsites and hunted a wider diversity of animals. When you combine these changes with the fact that this culture spread widely across the continent and left a permanent mark on the region, it's hard not to view the Arig Nation as a major turning point in human prehistory. In our next episode, we will explore the art and symbolic life of Arig Nations, and delve deeper into the worldview of these ancient Europeans. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a patron of the show. Your support will allow me to continue bringing you our prehistory.